morning, everyone. For those who are visiting, my name is Paul Graham. I'm lead teaching pastor here at Lakeside. Welcome. And you are coming and joining us in a series on Matthew. And we had skipped ahead to Matthew 3 and 4, and then we backed up uh, because we knew Christmas was coming, so we backed up to Matthew chapter 1. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the genealogy of Jesus in verses 1 to 18, and we're continuing in 18 to 25. And so if you want to turn in your Bibles, uh, if you don't have a Bible, there'll be one in the seat back near you, in front of you. And if you're here today and you don't have a Bible at home, you can take that one with you. That's yours. Um, So, uh, and I know a lot of you tap there on your phone. So if I see you looking at your phone, I won't assume you're texting. But do not abuse that grace, okay? Or I will take your phones away. (laughs) I cannot imagine what teachers go through in school with that situation. (laughs) I would just have a box at the door. They all go in there. Anyway, this morning, as I said, we're looking at Matthew... Uh, 1, 18 to 25, and, and you'll notice here, fairly obviously in the text, we're always looking to see what Matthew is doing. He's writing this for a purpose. All the books of the Bible are written for a purpose. They're written by authors. They're trying to convey something to us by the Holy Spirit, and so we're looking at the purpose of Matthew's writing. And what's happening here, quite obviously, is that he's moving from this sort of genealogy of Jesus. Here's all of his ancestors and his royal lineage, and now the camera kind of zooms in to the more intimate details of Jesus' immediate family. And so we start to hear about Mary and Joseph and Jesus and his birth, and Luke goes into much more detail on it. Matthew's a fairly brief writer. Um, But we're looking at the intimate details of Jesus' birth and family. And in your life groups, you'll go into more detail in that. Uh, But this morning, we're looking at the nature, the circumstances of Jesus' actual birth and the nature of his arrival and how he has come. So let's just uh, read Matthew 1, 18 to 25. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they had come together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father God, uh, we humble ourselves before your word. It is the only true authority in our life alongside your Holy Spirit who speaks through it. And so, Father, we submit to what you are teaching us, and we uh, recognize that there are things that are said here that are miraculous, that are uh, beyond our comprehension in many ways, but that are absolutely true, and that are a solid, they are a solid foundation on which we can build our life. And so, Father, I pray that you would work in our hearts and our minds today. In Christ's name, amen. 
So first of all, we're just going to more briefly look at the circumstances of Jesus' birth. And I'm brief on this because you're going to talk more about it in your life groups. But there's the betrothal of, of Mary and Joseph, and you're going to look at that. And the main thing we want to see here about the circumstances of his birth, as, as, as Matthew sort of narrows into this uh, immediate earthly family, the main thing I want to look at here is just the perfect appropriateness of it. In order for Jesus to be born in the miraculous way that God chose to set this birth apart, right? So, so God chose that Jesus, his son, was going to be born by a virgin birth or a virgin conception. So for him to be born in that way, then Mary obviously couldn't already be a mom with three or four kids. Because if a mom who already has three or four kids gets pregnant again, that would not be any surprise to anybody, right? That would just be the normal thing that you would expect, and her family and her friends would have some idea about where that baby came from. But it also wouldn't work so great if Mary was a completely just unconnected, um, you know, to any husband. If she was just a local girl in the village who got pregnant outside of marriage, that also might be shocking, but not so unusual either. And her child wouldn't have any confirmed lineage or ancestry. So that wouldn't work. It couldn't just be some village woman. It couldn't be some mom with three or four kids. And so God comes to Mary when she's betrothed. That is, she's pledged her fidelity to Joseph, and Joseph has pledged his fidelity to her. And this pledge basically establishes their marriage, okay? And their families know of their pledge to each other. And so in ancient Israel, this betrothal or this engagement lasted for one year in which uh, those that we would say are engaged are actually considered married. They have pledged their troth, or they have, in the old English, we don't troth much anymore, <laughs> but troth means that you have pledged your fidelity to them and your faithfulness to them. And so there are no other partners, there are no other person in my life except you. And in ancient Israel, at the end of one year of this engagement, Mary would normally, um, Joseph would be establishing his household during that year. He'd be you know, buying a house or renting an apartment and getting furniture and getting it all set up for her to come. And at the end of that year, she would move into his house and they would consummate the marriage. And so that's the betrothal. There they are essentially married. And that's why, why Joseph says he would quietly divorce her. And so, and so culturally they're considered married. And so this is a young woman who would only be pledged if she were known to be a virgin and she's in the line of David and her family and friends are all aware of her pledge status and so this is a perfect circumstance now that God has arranged because if she now becomes pregnant, there's a lot of verification that something unusual has happened. This is not just a mom with three or four kids who got pregnant. Yeah, we sort of expect that. This is not just some village young girl who's gotten pregnant outside of betrothal, gotten pregnant outside of marriage. You know, that happens, and we sort of know how that happens. This is a pledged virginal woman in the middle of her engagement and her pledge who suddenly is with child. And all the families are aware of who she is and who's involved, and so something unusual has happened. And then on Joseph's side of things, you have a man here that the text tells us who is righteous and just and that he is kind. Joseph wants to do what is obedient under the law. That's what righteousness means. It means under the law, he wants to do what is right before God. And he also doesn't want to be unkind or put Mary to shame, the text says. And so he considers and he contemplates that a quiet divorce is the most just and it's the most kind thing that he can do given what he understands of the circumstance. 
But while he is contemplating this course of action, and you can notice here that he does not act rashly. He's contemplating and considering what to do. He does not act in self-righteous anger. I can't believe you did this to me and you know, you're going to pay for this. Joseph is contemplating quietly what he can do to not shame Mary and extract himself from this in the most righteous way possible, even though his fiance is pregnant. During that time that Joseph is behaving this way, quite reasonably, an angel comes to him in a dream and gives him instructions. It's interesting, these guys named Joseph get a lot of things through dreams. I don't know if that's just a coincidence or what, but we have another Joseph and another dreamer, and he gets another dream and instructions, and Joseph chooses from that dream obedience over his own shame or embarrassment. Right? This is, this is not going to look good on Joseph with all of his friends that his fiance is pregnant. But he chooses to bear that shame. He chooses to adopt this child that he knows is not his own in order to take Mary in, in order to be obedient to God, in order to provide safety. And so just the circumstances of Jesus' birth, we realize that God has set up this virginal conception and virginal birth to this Mary who is betrothed and betrothed to a husband who is righteous and just and kind so that God's son can come into the world in this family. And as I said, in your life groups, you're going to sort of examine maybe some of the implications of that or, or, or what that's even telling us about God's value of family. God knows the world is not as he intended it to be. And God knows that not every family will be perfect and whole. But God has a plan. He has a, a good plan for how he expects families to be and wants families to be for their security and their safety, for the husband and the wife and for the child. But God knows that sin destroys those things. He knows not every family will be perfect and whole. Our own sin or the sin of others may do harm to our families, but in those cases God provides grace through his church and by his spirit. And that's a whole other thing that we could talk about there. Just from this text, just on the notion of what we'd call traditional or biblical families and why God has planned things that way. But the circumstances of Jesus' birth are literally perfect. God has set things up and ordered things in such a way that this birth can take place just as he intended so that we have this story here of this family. But then I want to look mainly today at the nature of Jesus' arrival. The first thing about his nature of his arrival that we get from this text is that it's prophetic. And there's no question that in all the, that all the disciples and all the early Christians viewed the arrival of Jesus as an answer to prophecy. And that these are prophecies that could not be manipulated by Jesus or any of his followers. Jesus had no control over the location of his birth. He had no control over the lineage of his parents. He didn't know what name they were going to give him. He didn't know the behavior of Judas or the soldiers or Pontius Pilate or Pharisees. And yet in every way, his arrival, his life and his death show him to be the Messiah. It was a prophetic arrival of Jesus in this family at this time to accomplish these purposes. And Matthew sets that out right at his birth here in this text. He says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And I don't think this needs too much explanation this morning. Matthew quotes the Old Testament more than any other gospel in terms of anticipation and expectation. And we've talked about that in weeks past. That Jesus is arriving as the Messiah. And he quotes here specifically Isaiah seven fourteen. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so his arrival is 
prophetic. That's a 700-year-old prophecy that this virgin conception and birth would take place. Secondly, his arrival is miraculous. The angel tells Joseph, Take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now, as I said, Matthew's sort of a very brief writer. Luke goes into more detail on this. In Luke 1.35, he says, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The Most High will overshadow you. Now, that's interesting language that Luke uses or that the angel uses with Mary. It's very similar to Genesis 1, verse 2. It says, The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And in Genesis 2-7, God breathes life into Adam, or the Spirit of God. And so now we have, according to the angel to Mary, the Spirit hovering over Mary and bringing life to Jesus. So there is this miraculous, almost recreation, which we're going to get into, of a new Adam, a, a, a man that is an interruption in the line of humankind. And there's a funny story that C.S. Lewis recounts of sitting in his office in Oxford around Christmas time. And his window is partially open and he can hear carolers outside singing about the virgin birth and the miracle of Christmas in that regard. And one of his colleagues comes into his office and he says, isn't it a good thing that, you know, we know better now? And C.S. Lewis says, you'll have to explain, I don't understand. And the colleague says, isn't it good that, you know, we have you know, we have science and knowledge and we understand, you know, that, you know, superstitious things like the virgin birth can't actually happen, that that's not possible. As C.S. Lewis says, you realize that's the whole point. Do you actually think they didn't know where babies came from? <laughs> the fact that it was a virgin who gave birth is the whole point of the birth. It's something that only God could do and that's why we celebrate it. Of course they knew where babies came from. They knew that this particular birth to happen in this way, this virginal conception, is a miracle and it could never happen apart from God. There's a good reason behind why God chose this method, apart from it being a clear sign that this is something different, this is outside of nature. It also took place this way in that Jesus did not inherit a sinful nature or the guilt that all humanity bears. Jesus' birth is meant to be set apart. It's meant to be an interruption in the human line from Adam. The line of Adam had continued on for thousands and thousands of years and all of the trouble that came from original sin had continued for thousands of years. And God says there has to be an interruption in this line. And so the line of Adam is interrupted in the virgin conception, and a new Adam has come who will not fail, as we saw in the temptation of Jesus a few weeks ago. And so God who creates in Genesis 1 is now recreating and redeeming in Matthew 1. He's coming by his spirit to do something new. He's making a way for mankind to be rescued from sin and reconciled to himself. Which leads to the main point, which we've been singing about and talking about already this morning. The nature of his arrival is that it is missional. The angel says to Joseph, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. His name is important. His name is going to be Jesus, which is the Greek version of Yeshua, or what we would pronounce Joshua, and it means God saves. And this name is not at all accidental, as we're soon going to see. Jesus came in the midst of a fallen world. Jesus arrived in this interruption in the line of Adam 
at the perfect time. He arrived in a world that was and is broken by sin and in need of a Savior. And he says, name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The problem of sin requires a divine solution. It needs a new Adam. It needs a man that comes from an interruption in the history of our sin. Only Jesus saves us from our sin. That's the mission he was sent on. Jesus is here and his arrival was missional. He was on mission. The law, first point is, is that the law or righteousness by our own works, which is what the law is about. God said, here, if you want to be righteous, here's how you be righteous. Try your best and see if you can measure up to the law. It was never going to save us because we could never measure up to it. Not because the law is deficient, but because we were deficient. And so Jesus has come to do for us what the law could not do to save us. In Romans 8, 3 to 4, Paul says it this way. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the spirit. And so Paul says the law was weak because we were sinful. That's that's why the law couldn't accomplish its purpose. And so God had to do something. He had to send his son in order to accomplish what we could not. And so we see the explanation of Jesus' birth. He must come in the likeness of sinful man. In other words, he must be fully human, born of a woman, but he could not be sinful himself or it would not be a satisfactory sacrifice. So if we're going to be rescued, we need more than a good moral teacher. We need something better than an example to follow. We need the perfect righteousness of the law to be perfectly fulfilled. We need a divine or a godly or a perfect solution that has come in the form of Jesus. And so Jesus is coming. His arrival is missional in that he has come to save sins. But the law, and we needed that because the law was not going to save us. The law was not going to redeem us from our sins. Secondly, Moses isn't going to save us. Now, this is just interesting. As as you read through the Gospels in the New Testament, you will discover that the person of Moses is equated with the law, right? Quite often it talks about Moses and the prophets or the law and Moses. The law came through Moses, and so the name of Moses is invoked and referred to by followers of the law. Now, this is interesting. This just me, maybe me. Maybe it's just the way my mind works. But, but given the fact that the religious people, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, and all these moralistic religious people who, who thought they could be righteous by their own works continually confronted Jesus and his followers with the boast that they followed Moses and they didn't need Jesus or Yahshua or, or Joshua. Right? I'll give you an example. John, John 9, 26 to 28. Jesus had just cured the man who was born blind. And and the the Pharisees are inquiring after him about this man, Jesus. And they said to him, what did he do to you? How, How did he open your eyes? And he answered them. He said, I've already told you and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? That's funny, actually. They're angry at that. And they reviled him saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. So this is where the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes are at, right? The religious people are like, yeah, we follow Moses. We've got the law. You may want to be a disciple of this Yeshua guy, but not us. And again, maybe it's just how my mind works, but every time they do this, the Pharisees, the self-righteous, are literally saying, 
we don't need Joshua to enter into the promise of God because we have Moses. I'll say it again because you might have missed it. We don't need Joshua to enter into the promise of God because we have Moses. I'm hoping some of you see the irony because it's actually pretty hilarious, right? Especially given the people saying it, right? These are Pharisees. They know their Old Testament, right? It's like they can't even hear the actual sounds that are coming out of their mouths because they know, and you know, if you recall from your many lessons in Sunday school and hopefully here, that Moses was specifically not allowed to lead his people into the promised land. Who led the people into the promised land? Joshua. And all of these Pharisees, every time they do this, they say, we don't need Joshua to lead us into promise because we are disciples of Moses. There should be like a whooshing sound going over their head at this point. Right? We don't need Joshua. We've got Moses. Moses is going to take us into the promise. Did you read your Bible? Moses didn't lead the people into the promise. Joshua led the people into the promise. And if they didn't get the whooshing sound going over their heads, they should get it when Jesus literally spells it out to them in John 5, 45 to 46. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. So Jesus actually points out their irony to them, and they still don't get it. I'm not the one accusing you. Moses is accusing you. He wrote about me. You say you follow Moses, but you don't believe in me. The Pharisees were blind guides leading others into blindness. They could not see what was right in front of them. There's a reason Jesus is called Jesus, why he's called Yeshua, why he's called Joshua, because God saves through Joshua. The law does not save. You will not enter into God's promise by Moses. But Joshua has come. Jesus has come. Be his disciple. Follow him. Trust him. He's the offspring of promise and the advent or the arrival of promise. All the promises of God have their yes in him. We have been reading in 2 Corinthians 1.20, including the promise of salvation. Acts 4.12 says, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. This is the name by which we are saved. We are saved. We are brought into promise by Joshua, by Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. And we can also add in here, in addition to this realization that Jesus is the new Joshua and who will save his people, the realization that Joshua was given the task of conquering all the enemies of God's people. And in the same way, Jesus, new Joshua, has conquered our enemies. Jesus has broken the power over of sin over us and overthrown the powers of darkness and destroyed our spiritual enemies and reserved for us a spiritual inheritance. Colossians 2.15 says, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. Jesus, the new Joshua, is in every way the one who leads us into promise. Jesus is the one who overthrows our enemies, even the final enemy, death. The law will not save you. Moses will not save you. Jesus has come to save His people from their sins. Thirdly, we notice that it's Jesus who will do the saving. 
We just notice the construct of that sentence there in Matthew 121. It doesn't say that this child will provide a way for us to save ourselves. It doesn't say that Jesus is going to help us get saved. It says he will save his people. We're not going to save ourselves by working really hard at the law. Jesus is going to do the saving. He is always the subject of the verb save or redeem or restore or reconcile. Jesus does those things, not us. He is the subject of the verb. He is the actor in the saving. 2 Corinthians 1.21 says, And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us, and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. It's God who establishes you in Christ. It's Jesus. It's God who does the saving. John 3.16, you know it. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. You have to understand this. As you read through Scripture, scripture God is always the actor. We are the recipient of his action. Right? He is the one who is initiating. It is his love. It is his giving. It is his Son. It is God's plan. It is God's initiative to save his people. We are not going to be able to solve our sin problem on our own. We need someone untouched by sin in relationship with the Father to come and rescue us. We can't save ourselves. He has to do the saving. We need a missional Jesus who is ready to leave heaven, ready to leave the perfect unity that he had with the Father and the Spirit and to enter into creation to rescue us. You can think about it this way. It's it's no good if we are drowning to be told... Just swim harder. Well, if we could do that, then we wouldn't be drowning, right? And that was essentially what the law was. It was God saying, just swim better and you will save yourself. That didn't help at all. Thousands and thousands of years of proof of that. If we could swim better, we wouldn't be drowning. It's also no good either for us to grab onto somebody nearby who is also drowning. They can't help themselves let alone you. So when we're struggling to tread water in life, when when we've gone down for the third or fourth time in our inability to save ourselves, we need a rescuer to enter into our circumstances from the outside. We need a rescuer who is firmly grounded to be able to lift us out to safety, to guide us to solid ground, to set us on a rock. And that is how Jesus saves. He comes from the outside. He's on a mission from heaven into earth, untouched by sin, able to rescue drowning humanity and set us on a rock in order to save us. And then verse 22, as Matthew continues, tells us that God is faithful. He will fulfill what he promised. Matthew quotes this Prophecy from Isaiah saying, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And this has come to pass. What God promises comes to pass exactly as he said he would. God is a promise keeper. And so when God promises to never leave us or forsake us in Hebrew 13, or promises to be our refuge and our strength in times of trouble in Psalm 36, or that nothing has the power to separate us from him in Romans 38, 38, or that he will wipe away every tear and that death and grief and crying and pain will exist no longer, he says in Revelation 21, when God makes those promises, we can trust them because God is a faithful promise keeper. God sent his only son to enter into our pain and our suffering in order to take on our sin to suffer and die on our behalf. Now, if God took that action, why would God do all of that and then let us slip away from him? 
God won't waste his son's sacrifice. God will not tarnish his name by not upholding his promise. God will not contradict his nature by withdrawing his love once it's given. Jesus will do the saving, and God is faithful that it will happen. Fourthly, by its nature, this mission is a mission of love. It is God's love. The love of God is demonstrated by the fact that it is his own son that he's given for our rescue. And it's worth thinking about this. It's worth considering what it means that God himself in the form of his son has come to rescue us. When I had it set in my heart to marry Wendy, I didn't send somebody else to propose to her. I went myself because I love her. And in matters of love, we go ourselves to things. When Isaac was sick with a fever and not improving as an infant, I took him to the hospital myself. I didn't send him with another person because in matters of love, we go ourselves. God entered into our world himself in the second person of the Trinity, Jesus the Son. And this is the difficulty that any so-called religion that denies the divinity of Jesus has. They have to try and make the argument that God loves us, but wasn't willing to come to us himself. They say God is a God of love, but rather than laying down his own life, he created an angel, or he anointed a man, or he had some other being come and die. He wasn't willing to come himself and die for us. But Jesus is called Emmanuel because he is God with us. God loved us and had such compassion for us that he entered into our world, he endured our suffering, and he died for us. We're going to talk about the nature of Jesus, human and divine, more fully next week. But just remember that. Just remember that simple truth that God loved us, that he came to suffer and die for us. I certainly do not want to be the one who meets God and has to tell him, like some people may someday, well, I knew that you loved me, but I didn't think you loved me that much. I didn't think you would actually come and die for me. I thought you just created an angel or something to die on your behalf. I don't think God will be impressed with that answer. God says, no, I loved you. I loved you that much that I would take on mortal flesh, that I would experience suffering and pain and rejection. I loved you that I would suffer humiliation and abuse and death on a cross in the form of my son. This is the astounding truth of Christianity. Ephesians 1, 4-5 says, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. God was pleased to choose us before the world was even created and to choose us in love, adopt us as his children, before we could possibly do anything to earn his affection. His love was already set on us. And he entered into our world to rescue us. Jesus' advent, Jesus' arrival, was a missional arrival. He came to save us. 
Yes, Jesus came to heal the sick. Yes, he came to feed the hungry. Yes, he came to bless the poor and to bind up the broken and to set people free from bondage. Jesus came to do all of those things, but ultimately Jesus came to save his people from their sin. So then that just leaves us with one final question. And it's a very important question for all of us here today. Who are his people? Right? Look at what the text says. It says he's come to save his people from their sin. It doesn't say Jesus will save everyone. It says his people. And John 3.16, which we looked at, says whoever believes in him. And there's a lot we could unpack from explaining exactly who his people are in Scripture and how we identify as his people and how they are chosen and all of those things. But the, the simple answer from the Bible, from cover to cover as you read the Bible, is this. If you trust in Jesus, then you are his people. If you put your hope only in Jesus Christ, then the Bible says you're his people. If you don't love and trust Jesus, then you are not his people. If you keep reading after John 3.16, John makes it clear there too. It says in 3.18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he's not believed in the name of God's one and only son. And then in another letter, the disciple John wrote later in his life, he makes this distinction clear again between true followers of Jesus, those are who his people are, and those who never really trusted and are not his people. He says in 1 John 2.19, They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us, but their going showed that none of them actually belonged to us. And so there's an easy way to tell right now this morning if you are part of God's people. Do you believe in him? Do you have faith in Jesus Christ? And faith is kind of a loaded word and it means a lot of different things. So you can replace this one. Do you trust Jesus Christ? Do you trust in him? Do you lean into and continue to follow Jesus? Do you, as Jesus says, abide or remain in him? Because if you trust Jesus and you abide and you remain in Jesus, then you prove yourself to be a part of his people and you are saved from your sins because Jesus came to save his people from their sins. So those who trust, those who abide, those who follow, those who have faith, those who believe, the Bible says it dozens of different ways, are all God's people and they are saved. Now on the other hand, there's lots of people who do not trust Jesus. There are lots of people in this world who reject Jesus. There are lots of people who want nothing to do with Jesus. They don't want to abide in him. They don't want to trust him. They will never seek after him. They refuse to remain with him. And those people are actually fairly easy to identify. They'll admit to themselves that they reject Jesus. Those are not his people. And they make it plain that they're not his people, as John says, because they go out from us and do not remain. But the Bible is clear. Those who seek will find, and those that believe will be saved. Anyone who seeks and trusts will be saved. You are his people. And so you can just ask yourself, in my life, do I believe in Jesus? Do I trust Jesus? Do I seek after him? Do I remain and abide with him? Do I lean into him rather than lean away from him? You can have every confidence that you are his people. You look at your family around you and some of them are beginning that lean. Some of the, They're all at different places in their life where some are rebelling and some are running and some are like the prodigal son, not abiding with the father. But at any point in 
their life, in your life. The Holy Spirit may reach out and just touch their heart, may touch your heart, and just say, you know what? You're actually one of my people. Lean into me. Abide in me. Trust in me. You are out in the darkness, despairing. There is hope here with me. I sent my son. Jesus came to save his people from their sins. You can be Jesus' people. Trust in him, and you are his people. Those that confess their need will be saved. Those that seek will find. Those that believe will be redeemed. That's who Jesus' people are. And this is the miracle of Christmas. This is the real miracle of Christmas. Not just all the warm, fuzzy feelings out there and people being nice to each other. That's not the miracle of Christmas. The miracle of Christmas is that God, the creator of the universe, would engage in a rescue mission like this to save us from our sins. That Jesus came that we do not need to stay in bondage, that we do not need to hide in darkness, but the light of the world has come in his presence. This is the miracle of Christmas, that God would so humble himself to come in the form of sinful man in order to rescue us from our own sin. Trust him. He is faithful. He wants you to believe in him and be saved and be rescued and be redeemed. That is the miracle of Christmas. That is the reality of the advent or the arrival of this miraculous baby Jesus who is going to save us as we trust in him. Let's pray. Father God, the arrival of Jesus in this way, and and you totally intended this, is meant to be a challenge. Every single person alive on the planet has to decide in their heart, what am I going to do with Jesus? There is this point in history that you just interrupted everything and said, I'm here to save. What are you going to do about it? And so, Father, I pray that this Christmas that we would welcome and embrace this challenge that Jesus puts on our lives. He challenged everyone he met from a blind beggar to a self-righteous Pharisee. There is no one who encountered Jesus without this challenge. What am I going to do about Jesus? And Father, I pray and I trust that almost everyone here today has already sorted out in their heart exactly what they're going to do with you. They trust you. They follow you. They lean into your son. They abide in him and they are counted among his people. Joyful and triumphant and rescued and redeemed. But Father, we're going to encounter a lot of people this Christmas who have never reconciled what to do with your son. They've never faced up to the challenge that Jesus poses What are you going to do with me? Father, I pray that the hope that we have in us, that we are his people, triumphant and victorious and rescued and redeemed, that that hope and that joy would pour out of us so that they would know. What do you do with Jesus? You trust him. He has come in love to save you. Just let him do his job. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.